Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. We are now exactly three weeks out, just three weeks out from election day, which by my own unscientific and idiosyncratic, but totally definitive standards, means that we have now officially entered the capital M midterm, capital H home stretch, which means that for the next month, this podcast is going to be an all politics, all the time affair. As I haul in some of the smartest people I know about electioneering from small bore tactics and broad brush strategy to speech writing, data analyzing, demographic and psychographic targeting, 30 second ad creating and carpet bombing. And of course, scenario spinning, headline decoding and all purpose speculating along with a little bit of breathless, but still ever farsightful prognosticating to help us get a bead on what is happening out there in America land in the key races for the United States Senate, the key gubernatorial contests across the country, the frantic and fervid fight for control of the U.S. House of Representatives, Barack Obama's moves, Joe Biden's non-moves, and of course, the large and rather rotund shadow cast on the midterm battlefield by Agent Orange himself, the former, unfortunately, President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. To kick off this homestretch run, we are lucky to have with us today two dear friends with whom I could and sometimes do talk politics with four hours on end, six days a week at even more on Sundays, Matthew Dowd and Jennifer Palmieri. Jennifer Palmieri, of course, you know well, and I know even better as one of the co-hosts of the show that I make for Showtime, The Circus. Jen joined us a couple years back, and she has been kicking ass on The Circus ever since. She is a former White House communications director for Barack Obama. She's a former campaign communications director for Hillary Clinton back in 2016. She worked in Bill Clinton's White House, where she had an intern by the name of Monica Lewinsky. Uh, she also happens to be the author of a number one New York Times bestselling book. That book, Dear Madam President, an open letter to the women who will run the world back in 2018. Number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That's pretty cool. And then a little later, back in 2020, she wrote a second book called She Proclaims Our Declaration of Independence from a Man's World. Both books come with the Heilman star of approval. On last week's Circus, a show that we made about the key Senate races in Ohio and Georgia, Jen and I were both down in Georgia for a little while. And in fact, at the very end of last week, we were able to go together to witness the spectacle that was the Herschel Walker Raphael Warnock debate. That was a much awaited debate because of all the controversy and scandal and accusation and allegation that have been swirling around Herschel Walker over the course of the last two weeks related to an abortion that he was alleged to have paid for uh, of a girlfriend. First, he said he has no memory of it. Then he said he doesn't know the woman. Then he said the woman was lying. She also happens to have had one of his several out of wedlock children. Not a great couple of weeks for Herschel Walker. Gotta say, rolling into that debate with very low expectations, going up against incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, one of the handful of people who have stood in the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church that Martin Luther King made famous down in Georgia. That debate last Friday, uh, well, it didn't go quite as a lot of people expected. Herschel Walker, who is genuinely a stupid person, I mean, as dumb as a rock and even less articulate than many rocks, someone who is capable of talking in ways about things like the environment in such ridiculous ways that you could just cut chunks of his speeches 
and make them into negative campaign ads. That has happened to Herschel Walker in this campaign cycle. He actually did not bad in this debate. Certainly did better than anyone expected. And on the other hand, Raphael Warnock, supposedly commanding a preacher after all, he did not do so great for a lot of reasons. But one came when he was asked whether he would support Joe Biden running for re-election in 2024, and he mm, basically refused to answer the question. That struck us all as a little, well, tone deaf, especially given the fact that if it weren't for Joe Biden, Raphael Warnock probably would not be in the U.S. Senate at all. So let's take a listen to what Jen Palmieri had to say about Raphael Warnock's abysmal answer in his debate with Herschel Walker about Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., People want you to take a stand and, you know, half of the half of Georgia is going to agree with you. Half of Georgia is not going to agree with you. But people respect you if you take a stand. And first of all, Georgia <laughs> elected Joe Biden president and is and the Democrats there are really proud of that fact. Right. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris came down to Georgia to campaign for Warnock and Ossoff. And that is why Warnock and Ossoff are our senators today. And to not back him, I th- you know, is just, you know, it looks it looks terrible. It's like it just it just looks it just looks terrible, and it and it irks some Democrats. Our other guest, the aforementioned Matthew Dowd, he's another straight shooter, or maybe given it's October and we're watching baseball playoffs, maybe the right metaphor here is he's an umpire who calls balls and strikes exactly as he sees them, regardless of whether the pitcher is a Republican or a Democrat. He got his start as a Democratic strategist who worked originally, I believe, for Lloyd Benson famous uh, Texan senator who became the running mate for Mike Dukakis in 1988. But in 1999, like a fair number of Democrats down in that state, Matthew switched parties, became a Republican for one reason and one reason only, to help George W. Bush, who had cast himself as a different kind of Republican, become president of the United States in 2000. And four years later, Matthew Dowd had become the chief strategist for uh, Bush's reelection campaign, helped him win that race against John Kerry. And from there, he vaulted out to California to become the chief strategist for Arnold Schwarzenegger in California during his 2006 re-election campaign. Matthew, also someone who's written some books, he wrote together with two other political folks, Doug Sosnick, Bill Clinton's political director, and Rod Fournier, formerly of the Associated Press. They wrote a New York Times bestseller back in the day called Applebee's America, How Successful Political Business and Religious Leaders Connect with the New American Community. And then he went on to solo author another book called A New Way, Embracing the Paradox as We Lead and Serve. That came out in 2017. Again, two books with the Heilman's star of approval. You got to read the Dowd books and the Palmieri books if you want to really be smart about America and our politics. Go do that. You know, the way that a lot of people who listen to this podcast will know Matthew Dowd, though, is they now think of him as one of the most forceful and passionate and occasionally poetic never-Trumpers out there. Someone who, like Palmieri and I, sees these midterms as vastly important in the fight not between Democrats and Republicans, but between team democracy and team autocracy and the obviously the central role that former President Trump plays in that fight in terms of these midterms turning so many Republican candidates, 300 of them or so, out there into election deniers, people who claim that 2020 was a stolen election, and a guy who was a real kingmaker in the Republican primaries this year, handpicking a bunch of the candidates who are now coming down to the wire in these races and not necessarily doing as well as Republicans had hoped and prayed they would. One example of that is what's going on in Pennsylvania, one of the most important Senate races in the country. 
The race between the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who has been struggling because he had a stroke in the spring and there have been questions asked and raised and not always fully answered to everyone's satisfaction about what the state of his health is. Last week, we saw him come out and do a, his first in-person interview since having that stroke with a reporter from NBC where he had to use captioning in order to understand everything that she was saying. Many will point out that captioning is not a big deal and it certainly isn't, but it's still keeping the question of Fetterman's health very much in the forefront of that race race in Pennsylvania. And yet most savvy political prognosticators and analysts look at that race and still think that Fetterman is likely to win. Why? Because his opponent, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, has been a strikingly weak candidate. I believe he may have houses like 11, 12, 14, 22 houses around the country. I don't know. He's got a lot of houses, that guy. And I'm not sure any of them are in Pennsylvania. The, the man who would not naturally know where to tell you to get a good Philly cheesesteak. Let's put it that way. There's only a few options there. And Mehmet Oz does not know them, although he does know a lot about crudite. Matthew Dowd has some things to say about the weakness of Dr. Oz, and we got to hear it here on Hell and High Water. Let's listen to that. I think in the end, Oz is such a flawed candidate, and he so doesn't fit the kind of voters you need in Pennsylvania. I mean, he just doesn't fit it at all. He fits it less than Donald Trump fit fit Pennsylvania in this. And I think that Fetterman, and we'll see how he closes and we'll see what happens of debate and all of that. But I think Fetterman is the kind of person that the voters you need in Pennsylvania. I mean, you can go through and like, yeah, maybe he's not 100%, maybe he's not that. But a guy that's rooting for, or a guy or a gal that's rooting for the Pittsburgh Steelers, or the Philadelphia Eagles sitting out there who hates politics and hates everyone in politics can vote for John Fetterman over a flim flam guy from out of state. So that is Matthew Dowd's pretty unambiguous take on the Pennsylvania Senate race. In addition to that race, and as I said before, the Georgia Senate race, we also talk about the Ohio Senate race. We talk about the Wisconsin Senate race. We also kind of look around at some gubernatorial races, all of us focusing on what's going on down in Arizona with election denier Carrie Lake, looking like she might actually win that race and you know potentially destroy American democracy. Not so, not such great news there. Better news, according to Matthew Dowd, is that Christy Noem in South Dakota may uh, be in more danger than people think. We also talk about the politics of weed. And God knows anytime we have a chance to talk about weed, I'm up for that. The notion that Joe Biden has really set off a revolution in some ways by freeing the prisoners, free the people who've been locked up for having smoked the demon weed. Thank you. Find a long time coming on that one. But that's not all, because where we start this podcast is with a robust discussion of what probably was the biggest news of last week. The, what looks like is going to be the final committee hearing of the January 6th House Select Committee. I didn't think there was anything left to learn from this committee. I figured all we were going to hear was speeches. Instead, we found out just how worrying some of the stuff the Secret Service did and didn't do around January 6th was, and the profound questions that it raises about the Secret Service as a non-political organization that's dedicated only to the safety of its protectees. We learned just how much of a badass Nancy Pelosi really is. And of course, we also discuss the subpoenaing. The subpoenaing. Is that a word? I hope it is. The subpoenaing of Donald Trump. We always wondered, would they slap him with a subpoena? Will he show up? Does it matter for history? Jennifer Palmieri and Matthew Dowd have strong takes on all of it. We couldn't avoid talking about the 1-6 committee because the 1-6 committee is history and what we take from it really matters. And let's be honest, because if we weren't talking about Donald Trump as a menace to democracy and our shared common future, well, you might not be sure that you were listening to an episode of Hell and High Water. 
this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. General Lady yields back. If there's no further debate, the question is on agreeing to the resolution. Those in favor will say aye. 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 Those opposed is no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. They actually, you know, did a roll call vote after that, but it was just too long to play. They racked up those, those not that nine to nine to nothing vote. And uh, Jennifer Palmieri is with us. Matthew Dow is with us. I have to say, I know a lot of people in politics, and I think many of them are delightful um, and, and, and intelligent and, and wise. But no two political strategists, talkers, wisdom peddlers, are more to my personal liking than. Jen Palmieri and Matthew Dowd, two extraordinarily nice human beings. Thank you guys for coming on the show. It's nice. You're very kind. Thank you. I'm really glad to be, always glad to talk to the two of y'all. I only had to lie about one of you in that case, and I'm not going to say which one. I'm only going to say which one. Um, so, so there's Liz Cheney. We came to the end of the, what we think is probably the end of the 1-6 committee, although they say they're going to keep doing stuff, um, and including pursuing this subpoena against Trump. And I, I wanted to start with the subpoena because it was the news. I put, I put slightly put air quotes around that. It was the news. It was the thing people didn't know was going to happen and was unexpected from that last hearing. And so, Jennifer, I ask you just to start. You know, <laughs> on some level, it's like you can't say that subpoenaing a former, former president to appear in front of a committee designed to get to the bottom of an insurrection is not like of some historic moment, but it will be of any practical impact whatsoever, uh, having issued that subpoena, which Donald John Trump will almost certainly just ignore. I mean, it's been kind of folly to predict the impact of the Jan 6 committee, because I think early on people thought it wasn't going to have much of an impact because what power did it really have? And we saw that the power of its own storytelling has been, uh, has had a huge impact. And it doesn't look like, you know, there's a, there's a theory in which Trump takes the bait in which he says, okay, I will show up, but their first reaction doesn't seem like that that's what they're going to do. So I don't know that it's going to have much of an impact. I thought that, you know, the thing that really stuck out to me was, uh, which I say we'll get to, was the behind-the-scenes stuff with the leadership. Like, wow. We definitely will. And, and, and But before we do that, Matthew, I just want to ask you the same question. Do you think – I am I am one of those people in, in Paul Mary's camp. I, I, you know, I was skeptical. Not not of its purpose or its necessity, but of its of its efficacy, of its ability to pull off what it pulled off with the hearings, the, the one six committee. So I, I, you know, I put myself down in the hopeful but but skeptical camp because not many congressional hearings I've ever seen have ever accomplished anything. And the the members of most congressional committees want to hear themselves talk more than they want to get anything done. And this committee was not like that. They they ran a bunch of great hearings. And and I don't know if, how much it moved the needle on American public opinion. There's some views that say it moved it almost not at all. And there's some data to back that up. But I still think the hearings are extraordinarily well run. So I'm like Paul Mary. I'm like a little bit, well, does the subpoena matter? I don't know. It's, it's above my pay grade intellectually. So that's why I ask you. Well, I'll take the broader and then get to the specific. So the broader, I think, I mean, it matters to me that any forum that provides truth into the ecosystem is a, a benefit, whether it, whatever short-term benefit it has is, isn't the point. The point is getting truth into our political ecosystem, which I think at this day and age is very hard. I think they did an excellent job at that. And I think that was very important. Yeah. The political ramifications of it, I think, I mean, you can't poll on it specifically, but the idea 
that threats to democracy is now the number two issue in America when you actually ask the question and list out the issues, inflation, abortion, all the issues and threats to democracy. Number two is threats, uh, is threats to democracy. And interestingly, when you ask among Democrats, threats to democracy is the number one issue when you pull out Democrats and among independents, it's number two. Republicans don't care. Um, they're, they're focused completely on inflation. I, I think the subpoena... Matthew, that, that's because they are the threats to democracy. Yes, I know. That's like, that's like, it's not just that they don't care. They, they care. They just like care in the opposite direction. But on the subpoena, I don't know. I mean, the, the practical effect, I mean, we can dive, obviously discuss what do we mean by practical effect. I don't think it has any effect on Donald Trump specifically per se of him appearing. I don't think that will ever happen. Right. But I think the practical effect is twofold. Is one... I think it continues to push the Justice Department to do actually do something and hold him and others accountable. And I think that's been a big, important part of the committee as the, the force at which it's making others who have a job to do and can do something do it. I think that subpoena thrown out there will have some effect on that push, I think, in the course of this. And then, you know, the practical political effect does the fact that a president's getting subpoenaed, you know, less than four weeks before an election continue. I think it always benefits the Democrats in an election when Donald Trump is front and center. When Donald Trump is front and center, I think it's a benefit. And so how much it benefits, I don't know. Maybe it's a little, but this election we'll talk about later. I know this election is going to be decided by a couple hundred thousand votes out of a hundred million. Who holds the Senate? Who holds the House? And so even if it moves at a half a percent of people that raise questions, it could have an impact. Jen, do you believe when you see, like Matthew just cited the polling numbers that says threats to democracy is now number two, Democrats it's number one, Republicans don't care or have an opposite rooting interest, whatever you want to say. I'm not skeptical, but but I, I know enough about polling to know that polling is really fucked up in general and doesn't work very well anymore. Um, and then secondly, that even when it used to work better, the difference between, you know, salience and valence is a thing, right? Where it's like, you know, there are a lot of voters who, who say things when they're asked to list the, what their priorities right. are. You know, the education used to be an issue that was in the top three for almost every voter and no voter ever voted on it. No, like you, you could be, you could run an education all day long and it was always like up there, I care about my kids' schools. But then, you know, if you ran on it as president or governor, people would be like, yeah, whatever. And they focus on economics or culture. So I, I'm not, again, I'm not saying it hasn't changed. I'm not, I don't want to be like, I'm open to the notion that it's I mean, definitely it's more the in the information ecosystem. We talk about it all the time now and the threats are really much are, are very acute. But do you think out there, you know, as you travel around on, on Showtime's The Circus and talk to people, do you hear people who are like, you know, not when you ask them, do you, are you worried about democracy? But do people bring it up without being asked? That's kind of one of the questions for me always is right. like, you know, if you, if you ask somebody, hey, do you care about the future of American democracy? A lot of them will say, I definitely do. It's one of the most important things. But if you say to them, you know, what are you, what are you thinking about this election cycle? What are you going to, what's going to determine your vote? It doesn't come up as often. Sometimes it comes up, but not as often. It comes up with, in my experience, it comes up with Republicans. It comes up with Trump supporters. It comes up at, you know, Carrie Lake events. People yeah. talk about that they're really worried about. Uh, democracy. And it comes up with Democrats. They lump Roe into that. It's when I talk to voters, you know, it's like threat to democracy. I think they're like, it's like, it's like, it's like erosion of rights. It's uh, yeah, an out of control court. It's not just 
that you know there may be you know Mark Fincham may be elected secretary of election denier may be elected secretary of state in Arizona it's like an out of control court is of what is how they think about it but the fact that it's on a list at all definitely is meaningful I do want to ask you about the the thing that that Jen brought up before which is you know that the, there's never been a, an incident in in recorded American political history that I, I I would contend that has been there's been as much voluminous video of as this one like we have seen the insurrection the rat riot the attack whatever you want to call it at the Capitol on January 6th from every conceivable angle man we live in an age of cameras and screens now and starting with that incredible New York Times reconstruction of it uh, almost, I mean, a year ago when we first saw that and people were like, wow, holy shit, man, that you could, I mean, you see, you saw incredible yeah. stuff there, right? And ever since then you thought, well, you'll never see anything more shocking than that. And then I've seen like 10 things more shocking than that because the committee did a job putting together all throughout. They've shown us video that has been stunning and horrifying. And I just thought there was no more, you know, there wouldn't be anything else that would was left to make me go, Oh, right. Like, not that I ever had any doubt about the severity of what happened. But again, like watching that behind the scenes footage of, of Alexander Pelosi's largely Matthew, you were like, man, this thing was like hanging by a thread. And you can see it in the, the fa on the faces of everyone. The Democrats who are trying to like lead in the room and the Republicans are all standing on the periphery looking, going like, holy fuck, what's going to happen to us now? Like, and, and but they all looked terrified. Like you never see those people look and like they're in a place they've never been before, which is like the other thing, lost, terrified and lost with the exception of we'll get to Nancy Pelosi in a minute. She never looked lost, which is kind of incredible, but everybody else looks terrified and lost. I, I think it's like it's a horror show, like a literal horror movie to watch. If you ever had any doubt. Yeah, this was just like some people who showed up to take some souvenirs and, and, and take some selfies at the, at the Capitol didn't look like that on the faces of of again, not just Chuck Schumer and his Democrats and Steny Hoyer, but Steve Scalise and every Republican, John Thune, every one of those pictures looked like they were like, they knew that the thing was all like hanging by a thread at that moment, I thought. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I think there's both a, a, a intellectual ex aspect of it that, you know, here's everything that happened, here are specifics, here's things people said, and then there's emotional as right. aspect of it, of that people just, this is, I think when they watch it and they, as it unfolded, and then the reports back almost a year ago or nine months ago, and then now with the videos, I think there's many Americans are like, that happened here? Like, there was never a consideration. And I even for a long time was like, yeah, Trump's Trump's awful, he's horrible, and he does a whole bunch, a bunch of horrible things, and he's really bad, and he rolls over norms and all of that. But I never thought, oh, the American democracy is threatened, right, is in peril. I only thought that in the aftermath of that. I mean, I understood the elections and they weren't representative and all of those things. But after that, I was like, wow, I always thought this could happen somewhere else and never happen here. Now, you know, there's a in, in somebody that's worked in politics for 40 plus years in some way. I now think, yeah, we could lose our democracy. It's evident that we could lose our democracy. And that was, to me, an emotional reaction of somebody that's been vested his life in this now believes that that America no longer is a guaranteed democracy in this. And I think January 6th and what the committee hearing did out of it, I think enlightened many of us. And I'm gonna go back and add something to something Jennifer said. I do think people put Roe in the bag of threats to democracy. I also think they put many other things yeah. in the bag that includes January 6th, but also includes, do we have majority rule in this country anymore because of all of the manifestations of 
gerrymandering and all of that do when the when the vast majority of the American public wants gun reform, it doesn't happen. Wants to keep Roe versus Wade, that doesn't happen. Wants increase in minimum wage, that doesn't happen. There's like five or six things that 70% of the country want and it's not happening. And I think all of that is the is our democracy threatened and is it been weakened? And do we have a representative government anymore as they watch television, as they watch people say stuff that's crazy and attacks on all kinds of groups. And so I do think we are at a different time of campaigns. And this election shows that. This should be an election that Republicans should just be a slam dunk, take back the Senate, take back the House when you have a president with, with that. But I think because of this broad threats to democracy and concerns by Americans, we've ended up in a place where we have an incredibly competitive election, but for those things. Right. Yeah. And we, yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more about all of that. That's, that's, uh, on the money. And I want to just, you know, in almost every discussion I've ever had about the one six committee, I'm always playing Liz Cheney sound. I think justifiably so she's been, you know, the intellectual yes. political leader of, of that endeavor. And, and, you know, she deserves extraordinary credit. Uh, I will now though play a little bit of Nancy Pelosi just because this is like maybe this is made the most this is like this is the the time capsule clip that will live forever um li literally forever uh as long as there's video there will be this video Terry McCulloch who's is is Howard Wilson's wife one of the more exceptionally uh, sharp savvy long-standing political advisors in democratic politics makes an appearance in this video she walks in to tell Pelosi what's going on that Donald Trump has been thinking about, talking about, threatening to come up to the Capitol. Uh, and and then she says, you know, she, I don't think she's coming. It doesn't seem like he's coming, but he might come. And man, this thing has, you know, I, I haven't looked, but there's, I would say at this point, there's like roughly, I'll use the precise term, like 4.7 jillion <laughs> social media views of it. And I think there will be another uh, 10x that over the coming days and weeks because it will never die. Nancy Pelosi, talk about what she wants to do when she hears Donald Trump might be coming to the Capitol. Secret Service said, they have dissuaded him from coming to Capitol Hill. They told him they don't have the resources to protect him here. So at the moment, he is not coming, but that could change. change. I would come, I'm going to punch him out. This oh, is my wow, mom. I would pay to see that. I'm waiting for this, for trespassing on the Capitol grounds. I'm going to punch him out, I'm going to go to jail, and I'm going to be happy. This is the last part. This is the best part. I'm going to punch him out. I'm going to go to jail and I'll be totally happy. It'll be a totally fine outcome. Um, you know, and, and, and Jenna, here's my thing. You've had a lot of experience with Pelosi from, usually not from any congressional service, but from, from the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue interacting with her because she's been a huge figure in democratic politics, pretty much our, all of our lives. I just want you to kind of reflect on it for a moment because she basically was a boss through all of Trump, right? You know, she and she understood in a way that a woman, I, I will say, of her age, you wouldn't expect to. Social media, how to like like walking out of the White House with the sunglasses on, <laughs> knowing how to like play that game. The how, what the photos sometimes within the White House when she was there would look like when she was like lecturing rightly, like righteously lecturing all those Trump Trump guys in the Roosevelt Room. She like understands the the dynamics of of stagecraft and modern media and how to look like a badass, you know, as much as anybody I've covered. And, and she gets not enough credit for that. And the thing you saw in this video was 
all the men about her are like stunned into silence. They look poleaxed and she's like in every single piece of video. Now, look, I don't know what that, you know, it's possible her daughter was only shooting her and wasn't shooting other people. I, I mean, I'm not, not to, to cast doubt on the footage, but I don't know. There are probably men doing some heroic thing somewhere, but every piece of footage you see of her, she's making plans. She's adapting. She's calm. She's focused. She's articulate. She's like everything you want a leader to be in a crisis. And this is like the greatest crisis they've ever faced. And she's never a moment in there where she doesn't have her shit together. And I just was like, man, if you don't think, even if you're, I don't care what your ideology is. If you don't look at Nancy Pelosi in those moments and go, I would like to be in a foxhole with her. You're not tethered to reality is my view. There's so much, there's so much to, to unpack here though. You know, one thing I remember when I worked uh, for president Obama and she was no longer speaker, but so I guess it was Boehner was speaker, right? After, during Obama, Boehner, it was not, not Ryan. Oh, no, it was Ryan. This is Ryan. This is when Ryan had taken over. So it's Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Harry Reid, and her in the Oval Office. And Paul Ryan, you know, as happened to every Republican leader in like the last few times we've had a Republican speaker, can't control his caucus, can't like get it together. Mitch and Harry Reid are having a hard time with the Senate. And I said to her afterwards, I was like, do you just sit on the couch and shake your head and think you guys are a bunch of jokers? Because she's like always in control of her caucus. And, you know, that and I don't, you know, like, yeah, she's great at social media, but I don't think it's because she thinks about she thinks about that or that she's savvy in that way. I just think she's so certain of who she is. She says, know your own power, know your power. That's like her catchphrase. That's what her book is. But uh, she really lives that and she's never in doubt. And she always thinks that she has the right answer. I mean, that footage, it did not take her any time at all to kick it into that right gear. And I've, I've been in situations like when the White House is on lockdown or the White House has a shooter or, you know, somebody running around in it that we're not sure what's up with that, where all of a sudden the leaders have to process like, oh, wait, this is really happening. Oh, wait, this means I'm in danger. She just, you know, got it from the get go and just getting, I mean, watching her like figuring out like okay we're gonna call we're gonna call the ag we're gonna call secretary of defense on the phone with mike pence honestly i'm not sure if i was on the phone with mike pence i would have told mike pence where i was she told him exactly where they were did you notice that yeah, she's like yeah, we yeah. are here and they ble-. and i was like god knows who's listening to mike pence's phone i'm not sure that i would answer that and like the concern about him and his safety you know she was just like operating at all levels she was running the federal government at that point right yeah. the president was certainly incapacitated the number the number two guy was incapacitated but the number three in line speaker of the house was like you know running the democracy right from whatever bunker and matthew here's the thing about this right i'll give another i'll throw another bouquet to nancy pelosi for one other thing I don't think I've like in terms of dealing with Trump and many, many Democrats had different ways of dealing with Trump, different coping strategies, different political strategies. The small grace note of her for four years of saying whenever she was asked, whenever she was most things were most fucked up of her always saying, I'm praying for him. I thought it was like the most brilliant thing I've ever seen because it was like, you know, Trump, Trump got it. I mean, Trump got got the got was in on the joke, but you couldn't win that argument because she would just always be like, no, I'm praying for him. I really am. I am praying for him. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. And, and without being sarcastic, she was still taking a giant shot at him. There's a, a brilliance to that, that I will always admire. But here's what I saw in that tape. The, the other thing that really struck me in the tape that we saw in the hearing was that woman who was an insurrectionist in the Capitol screaming, bring her out here or we're coming in to get her with like blood in her eyes. And I thought, 
you know, Nancy Pelosi has been like demonized by the right for, for 25 years, not just by Donald Trump's Republican Party, but by the prior Republican Party, by your Republican Party, by, by, I mean, she's been the, been made the, the bet noir for a long time in ads, the worst, most misogynistic, terrible, sometimes violent attacks, right? You know, along with some other women we can name, including one who Jennifer worked for, you know, in the pantheon of, of leading women on the Democratic Party who've been demonized by the right. And I thought when you saw that woman acting that way, I thought that's the price right there is that there are people, uh, many people at some level in the Republican Party right now at the, ba- at the grassroots who would have her head if they could, literally. Well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I mean, Nancy Pelosi to me, and I've not always been a fan of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I and I've also been a one of like, isn't it time like the sort of this generation go and we have a new generation like the Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's, the Biden's, the... The Mitch McConnell's just isn't it about time we turn? But watching this, watching the video, and watching actually Nancy Pelosi being the only one that can get anything really done, and actually she's the only one that can get anything done. She proved it during the Obama presidency that she was the one that got, actually got the things through. She's proved it in spades in the Biden presidency, and she proved it in the Trump presidency. She was the only one that actually stood up to the guy. And and I believe in not an arrogant way, but like, I'm here to protect our country from this guy, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect our country against this guy. And oh, by the way, I hope he's great, and I hope he does well, and I'll pray for him. So I, I've I've become... <laughs> I've gone from a person like, okay, I'm t- you know tired to like, I'm so glad she was there yeah. uh, in the midst of this because of uh, not, this is not meant to be sexist, but all these men around just seem to like be run around afraid of Donald Trump's shadow and anybody screaming at her. And I give her, and not to delve off into this, but you know, she's a person of devout Catholic faith. I mean, she is a person of devout Catholic faith and it points her life right? The social justice stuff of the Catholic faith, her sort of strength, I believe, and her courage and her willing to stand up for others comes from a lot from her Catholic faith. And I think that you you can see some, and Biden shows that too, just the ability to stand through it all and still come out and say, I'm going to do what's right for people, right? That, that That's sort of, I think, in both of their faith lexicon in this. I think that makes the right so angry (laughs) because not only is she a Democrat, which they hate, and she's a woman, but she's a woman who expresses deep faith and a language of faith. And they think they've co-opted that. They think they've got that. And anybody else that expresses faith in a different version, I think it just incenses them, incenses them. Yeah. It makes them, it makes them bonkers. There's no question. Nancy Pelosi would praise. I'm with you, Matthew, on one thing. How old is Nancy Pelosi? Jen, here's your pop quiz for the day. How old is Nancy oh, Pelosi? 82, 81. Correct. That's correct. Matthew, how old is, uh, is Steny Hoyer? 78. 83. 83. 83. Uh, Jen, Jen, how old is James? Is Jim Clyburn? 84. 82. The leadership of the House of the Democratic Party, the, the, party, of, uh, the party of the young uh, in the House of Representatives are all octogenarians. And I will say, again, with all having said, I respect Nancy Pelosi as much as I just did. I'm with Matthew on the fact that, like, if you're going to be the party supposedly of young of the of the youth in America, it would be better to not have an entire leadership comprised of people in their 80s. It's an not entire it's, leadership. 
Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're octogenarians. They make Joe Biden look young, and that is hard to do, ladies and gentlemen, at this point. No King dis- Charles Joe- no, no. is 73 years old. Hey, but King, <laughs> King Charles is a ceremonial job. He's not supposed to actually run anything. He's just like supposed to like you know play with the corgis or whatever the fuck it is he does. <laughs> I, I, I'd be happy to abolish that job too, by the way, I'll just say. <laughs> now, now, I want to play one more piece of sound from the 1-6 committee because I want to play Schiff talking about the other thing that happened in this hearing, which we've been kind of been bubbling around for a while, and I think this has long-term repercussions, are questions about the Secret Service. The the thing that, that Frank Figluzzi said on TV the other day, which is like, this wasn't a failure of intelligence. This is a failure to act on intelligence. And there are a lot of questions that have been raised now. And it really kind of came to a head, I thought, in that hearing. So let's take a listen to Adam Schiff, who kind of summarizes all of it. There was a lot more in this hearing, but Schiff uh, kind of puts a pretty fine point on it right here. You've seen the Secret Service and other agencies knew of the prospect of violence well in advance of the president's speech at the Ellipse. Despite this, certain White House and Secret Service witnesses previously testified that they had received no intelligence about violence that could have potentially threatened any of the protectees on January 6th, including the vice president. Evidence strongly suggests that this testimony is not credible and the committee is reviewing additional material from the Secret Service and other sources. The Secret Service was monitoring this kind of online activity and was sharing and receiving the results of that effort. They work closely with other agencies, sharing intelligence about the joint session of Congress derived from social media and other sources. So there's a bunch of examples of it, and it's now looks, you know, there's a lot of discussion. You know, given what happened with the Secret Service text messages, given the reports that there, you know, you had uh, you have presence of white supremacists within the Secret Service, disturbing reports of that kind, questions that have emerged from reporting, contemporary reporting about the Biden people worried about some of the people who are Donald Trump, but wondering whether they can trust Secret Service agents who are assigned to President Biden. So the question I ask you both: You both have worked in White Houses, um, and you both have experience. You've never uh, you've never been a protectee, to my knowledge, either one of you. But you both have run up, have spent years working alongside uh, people who were protectees and 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 encountering Secret Service people on a daily basis in your time in the White House. So, uh, Matthew, I'll just start with you. Like, I, I imagine it must have been it's inconceivable to you on the basis of your time, or is it, in the Bush White House, that, like, these kinds of questions could be being raised about the U.S. Secret Service. And if they are being raised credibly, which they are, how could it be? What the fuck is going on here? And what do we do about it? Well, I'm glad you brought up this because, I mean, and going back to an earlier point you made is every time you watch this, you thought you you weren't going to be surprised at anything, and then you become surprised. In the course of that hearing, this, this was the element I was most surprised about because I've always thought these are, and I've, and this is a broader question, which we can talk about in a second, but that the Secret Service was, you know, there's obviously elements of, there's people in anything that aren't good in all it, but generally they're going to do whatever it takes to protect what whomever it is they need to protect in the government. And they stand for, you know, that they're going to be a line, the, one of the last lines in defense of our country's ultimately democracy, because these are elected officials in the course of this. That to me was exceedingly disturbing. But I think what we've learned in the last five or six years is that it seems that every group that legally can carry a gun has a problem. And I would, I would put that Secret Service, I would put that with money in law enforcement, and I would put that with some elements in the military. And it, it seems that they have become the place that many people who have applied for jobs and risen in this 
have a tendency to lean into this sort of white nationalism. And we've seen evidence of it in all of those branches of government. And now I didn't think we'd see it in the Secret Service because I thought they were a different, they were set apart from that. But it doesn't, in the end, we have to deal with this as a broad societal thing that the people that we legally allow to carry a gun and shoot people, this is a problem in every single one of those platforms. Jen, that really asked yeah. the same question to you and, and react to what Matthew just said. I felt it building in the Secret Service, honestly. I mean, I have so much respect for them and particularly the agents are so professional and, you know, the elites of the elites and all of that. But you felt political division. I felt, you know, I felt a big difference between Clinton and Obama, I would say, in terms of how, particularly in the uniform division, just bumper stickers you would see, just kind of uh, conversations you might overhear from that more conservative and willing to express it, say it out loud, you know, even on the even on the White House grounds. And talked to some former Secret Service agents about it, about how, you know, the concern that they saw with politics continuing to creep in. And, you know, I guess for the reasons that Matthew said, that usually creeps in, those politics usually creep in on the on the right. But, you know, there's what Schiff said that is like incredibly troubling that or not. I mean, the idea that the idea that somebody would go from the Secret Service to being a deputy chief of staff it's just like such in violation of what how the Secret Service has always sought to protect themselves from any kind of political involvement. That in and of itself is shocking. But, you know, it's not just what, what Schiff said. I saw Raskin, I watched him on our friend Alex Wagner's show that same night, and talking about, you know, hinting at the possibility that maybe Secret Service are trying to remove Pence from the Capitol for reasons other to, than to protect him. Braskin said the six most chilling words that have surfaced in this investigation to my mind were I'm not getting in that car, which is a quote of Pence. Mike Pence. Like that. And, you know, just as I, I was as I was watching all the behind the scenes stuff we saw with Pelosi and it was so much more dramatic than we it's always more dramatic to see in person, but it's more dramatic than we could have imagined. I'm thinking what was happening behind the scenes with the Secret Service and with Trump? Like, what might that be? But I mean, this is talk about something you would not imagine could happen in America, but that, that the Secret Service would align to, you know, at least some of the Secret Service would align to thwart, put Mike Pence at risk, or at least right. sit on intelligence that's going to hurt him is like incredibly chilling. I would be worried if I were, you know, I get why the Biden staff, particularly early on, was shaky, wanted to replace people. Anthony Ornato is the person you referred to earlier, Jen. There was this guy yeah. who went from who went from the service into uh into Trump's White House. And it is weird. And you know, I'll say, you know, I remember somebody when I was like a much younger person, uh, somebody came back from DC and gave me a secret piece of secret service swag of some kind. And I was like, you know, secret service, that's cool. Man, nothing cool about the Secret Service right now. It just freaks me out. And I agree. And this gets to our, our questions. We'll move into politics here in a second. But, you know, there's so much stuff that we find ourselves. We're all roughly the same age. I mean, Matthew's like whatever. He's 112 or whatever. He's got some, <laughs> some Dorian. He's got some Dorian Gray shit going on that makes him look like a very young man. He's like drinking the blood of young goats or something that keeps him young. But like, but like the reality is that like we all we all find ourselves routinely saying things that like 10, 10 years ago, certainly certainly 20 years ago, we would have been like, 
when people say stuff like that, they're batshit, bonkers, <laughs> conspiracy. Like that, you know, like people, I mean, even just the like, if so and so wins the presidency, I'm going to leave the country. You're always like, right. fuck you. You're not, you're not, it's not, not only is that a stupid thing to say, you're a fucking liar. You're not going anywhere. I don't give a If Mitt Romney becomes president, I'm going to leave the country. No, you're, <laughs> shut the fuck, shut the fuck up. Or George W. Bush wins, I'm in it. Like, yeah, shut up. But like the idea that, like, yeah, there could be sleeper cells in the Secret Service who eventually could be instrumental to plotting a coup would be like one of those things that like even as, as even just at the turn of the century, we would have been like that person needs to be consigned to some kind of loony bin or like made like the editor in chief of the Daily Kos or something. You know, now like we all go, yeah, like, yeah, we should worry about that. And it's chilling and it throws into stark relief the stakes of the midterm elections that we're about to encounter here. Uh, well, it, it, what, John, it, it, to me, I mean, I was going to say personally, to me, it has caused me to reassess my view of America in the world, right? right? It, it has caused me to like, like, and I've loved politics because I think it was a, I wanted to be involved ever since I saw Watergate back in 1973. <laughs> and I, I thought it was so amazing. And isn't this great? And I thought, I, you mean you saw Watergate? You mean you saw all the president's men or something? No, I saw, I watched the Watergate hearings in the summer of 73. And I was, a, I was like a weird kid, obviously, but I watched them and watched them every single day when I watched John Dean testify and Sam Irvin and all of that. And it got me into what got me into politics. And I believed me too, Matthew. America was the greatest country on earth, and we've had our problems, but we always end up in the right place. This period of time has caught and, and watching what has surfaced, I don't think Trump's caused it. He's just dug it up and given it a better, bigger forum. And I think that's eye-opening. And I think that's a good thing because we have to obviously fix it. But it's caused me to think about why, like, like question sort of America's, our, our ability to lecture other people about what they should be doing. All right, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of Matthew Dowd and the one and only Jennifer Palmieri here on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Jennifer Palmieri and Matt Dowd on Hell and High Water. Um, listen, um, I, 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 again, I will shift to, to politics and, and all the people that you and I, that all of us admire have always believed that like the country's better for being challenged and questioned all the time. That's, that's how it, you know, in the continual quest for betterment, if not perfection, that the way you get there is by casting a, a very clear eyed, uh, sometimes, sometimes, uh, gimlet eyed view on the country and be like, yeah, you got to challenge those premises and see what there is and push hard against them and sort of see where it's, where it's lacking or where it's not measuring up. And it turns out that right now, at least where it's lacking and not measuring up in some of these respects is, is more dramatic than it's ever been and more fundamental, like more at the core of like the thing. Right. And I, and I guess I would say as my seg, as my seg here is here's the other, here's another institution to which that applies. The United States Senate, the world, people used to call the United States Senate, the world's greatest deliberative body, <laughs> the world's greatest deliberative body, ladies and gentlemen. And, and right now where Jen and I were just a few hours ago, a short, a few short hours ago in the state of Georgia, a gentleman, great football, great football player, one of the great football players in the history of the NCAA, a gentleman named Herschel Walker is on the precipice of becoming a member of the United States Senate, the world's supposedly the world's greatest deliberative body. This is before we get to the debate that occurred. This sound will never get old for me. I stood there 
in a parking lot in Carrollton, Matthew Dowd, just the other day. And I watched Herschel Walker flanked by Tom Cotton and, uh, and Rick Scott at an event that he was surely told, don't talk about yourself. Certainly don't talk about your scandals. Certainly don't talk about abortion or anything that it touches on that issue. Just talk about how bad Raphael Warnock is. And Herschel Walker instead with those two senators right behind him who had, who had made a point of not talking about any of those topics that they weren't supposed to talk about as they like audibly sweated. I don't mean just visibly sweated, audibly sweated. And you could see them about to lose their respective lunches when Herschel Walker decided to tell this little story about livestock. As they've been saying, something is better somewhere else. And I'm here to tell you it's not. So I've been telling this little story about this bull out in the field with six cows. And three of them are pregnant. So you know he got something going on. But all he cared about is kept his nose against the fence, looking at three other cows that didn't belong to him. Now all he had to do is eat grass. But no, 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 he thought something was better somewhere else. So he decided, I want to get over there. So one day he measured that fence up. And he said, I think I can jump this. So that day came where he got back. And he got back, and as he took off running, he dove over that fence, and his belly got cut up onto the bottom. But as he made it over on the other side, he shook it off and got so excited about it. And he ran to the top of that hill, but when he got up there, he realized they were bulls too. So what I'm telling you, don't think something is better somewhere else. Okay. I don't really think that's what he was, I don't really think that he was, what he was telling us, you know. I, I'm, I've said many times uh, that everything that Donald Trump says is either uh, confession or projection. And in that, in that regard, Herschel Walker is the ultimate Trump uh, candidate because that is all projection and confession there. Notice the three cows that the bull impregnated and then wanted to go and leave behind before the, before the babies were born and go and try to find some other cows to impregnate. I mean, if that's not, if that's not like basically I, like I, I'm Herschel Walker, I am that bull. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is. Jennifer. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Intellectually, it doesn't even hang together, which I know is shocking because <laughs> he's the challenger. Yeah. He should want us to go over the, and check out the grass. He wants us to believe that the grass actually is greener on the other side of the hill, that if you go with him as opposed to the incumbent, things are going to be better. So shockingly, his argument doesn't hang together intellectually, let alone, I mean, the, you know, the debate preppers, when they watched that part of that yeah. like that day yeah like that is a scary but jenny look well I, I i'm happy to make fun of herschel walker all day long but we were both at that debate last night yeah and there's and and the only headline that you could you could write i was like immediately i'm like here's what's your lead herschel walker held his own held his okay own. i predicted this well he did hold his own and i don't even think by the by the by the tragically low by the, the by, the lowering of expectations, I mean, he held his own. I'm the guy. He's not a great debater, but he didn't. He did, uh, certainly exceeded expectations. And he, and I thought, you know, I've seen worse. I've seen worse debate performances by other Senate candidates in both parties. And and so I ask you, how worried should Democrats be now about the possibility that Herschel Walker will in fact win that race? Well, the Braves were playing at the same time of that debate, so. Um, the Braves are playing in a playoff, so that seems that that's good for Warnock. But I think it's I think it's a problem because he, um, you know, there were sentences that he said that made zero sense. But you know, Walker had a game plan. 
and like not to like not to push the football metaphor too much, but like he had a play and he just kept running it over and over again, which was anytime Warnock Warnock was not definitive. Warnock, I think, was probably trying to appeal to Republican. He didn't want to say anything too lefty that would offend Republicans. So he was being wishy-washy. He wouldn't commit on certain answers. And so then that just gave Walker an opening every time to be like, he's Washington, he's Washington, he's Washington. It was very Trumpy that way, right? Yeah. Um, he just kept playing that same play over and over again. And, you know, did I think Walker probably shored up some Republicans that were nervous about him. And I don't think Warnock did himself any favors with independents or Republicans that were thinking of voting for him because right. he looked a little shady. We'll get to, we'll get to that in one second. And I really I mean it. I always jump ahead too fast. No, Sorry. no, no, no. I, I want to get. I mean, I want to get to a specific thing about Warnock. You didn't get to. You didn't yeah. get to, you're perfect. I just I want to I want to focus on one specific thing about Warnock in a second. But yeah. But but Matthew, I, you know, right now I believe it's fair to say that that the that a the set all these center races have tightened as as they would. B, mm-hmm. the, the the issue terrain, I'm not discounting the, the still the potential power of Roe and Dobbs to move votes. That's part of why Democratic enthusiasm is very high. It's also the case the inflation number was bad. And Republicans are very on offense on a lot of, in a lot of places running on, in some cases, very bogus versions of but these issues that Democrats have a hard time with. Crime, immigration, the inflation issue. You see it happening all over the place. Most set people I know think that there's, the, of all these in-place Senate races, that Democrats are probably going to lose in Nevada. And and in a 50-50 Senate, you lose an incumbent, you got a problem. So who's the second most vulnerable incumbent in the Democratic Party? Raphael Warnock. If they lose two incumbent races, that is a bad, bad outcome for Democrats. And so I ask you, when you look down at Georgia about what's going on there, the Herschel Walker scandal, the debate, everything that's going on, including Raphael Warnock, what do you see? Well, first, the speculation you just had is a bad outcome for America. I mean, I I think the idea that Herschel Walker, who any normal human being, what you'd ask him, should that guy be in the United States Senate? People would say no. But the idea today that he has a not only a legitimate shot at being elected, and you could add him to a whole bunch of other people that I bet we'll talk about, but that that we are here today having this conversation with somebody supremely unqualified to hold office is a scary time. And it is actually a concern. We're, we're, that should question our whether or not we believe the, how strong democracy is that that could happen, that that, that could happen in a t- at this moment. And so I think Raphael Warnock's going to win. If I were Democrats, I'd be more concerned about Nevada than I would be about Raphael Warnock today. I think he'll win. I think that this race was always going to be, no matter what it was, was always going to be decided by three or four points. I don't think the debate will matter that much because I think if you saw Raphael Warnock, yeah, he's a United States senator. He knows what he's doing. And, and, and if you were a Democrat watching, you, you like him, you like Raphael Warnock, you hate Herschel Walker, we're opposite for Republicans. Independents were not watching that debate. The 5% or 4% or 3% were not watching that debate Friday yeah, night. They're, in watching Georgia. The, they're watching the Braves. There's yeah. that. So, I, so it is exceedingly concerning, as I say, for the, the Democratic Party if they were to lose, but more so for the country. But I think Raphael Warnock will end up winning that race because I think what's going to happen, and this is something that I've seen in elections in Georgia, if people can split their ticket, they want to split their ticket. And so if they can vote, if they can say, I'm going to vote for the Republican for governor, these, these, I'm talking about these four or 5%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Then I got an out to vote for the Democrat for the United States Senate. And it just gives them the when when they can say, I split my ticket, I voted Republican for governor and kept the governor there. That's what I think is going to happen. Jen said this thing about 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 Warnock being I, I think you used the word shady. Um, and I think you didn't mean criminal, obviously, you meant like iffy, you know, he was um, shading his answers, shading. shading. <laughs> well, and here's a good example. So, you know, they asked Herschel Walker if he'd support Donald Trump in 2024. But Walker's like, of course, I'll support Trump in 24. And he made the whole answer be about loyalty. We've been friends for a long time. Of course, I'm sticking by my friend. I don't care. Like, you know, Joe Biden cut and ran in Afghanistan. I'm loyal, loyal, loyal. Loyals, winners are loyal. That's how it is, man. In America, if you weren't going to be a winner, you got to be loyal. And I'm going to be loyal to Donald Trump. Okay. Think what you will about that answer as a matter of substance. Um, <laughs> Raphael Warnock asked about a number of things. He was asked about whether the Braves should change their name. Didn't have an opinion about that. Couldn't answer that question straightforwardly. You know, even to the point of not being willing to say that's up to the Braves. He hummed a hummed a hummed about that. And then... He got the question that Herschel Walker got, but in reverse, he got asked the question of whether he was he'd support Joe Biden seeing a re-election in 2024. And this is what he said. Raphael Warnock asking about whether he wants, well, we'll hear the question. Here it comes. Would you support President Biden running for a second term in 2024? I've not spent a minute thinking about what politicians should run for what in 2024. Is that a yes I, or a no? I, the answer is I have not. And, and, and maybe this is difficult. Maybe this is difficult for people to understand because that's how politicians think. I, I think that part of the problem with our politics right now is that it's become too much about the politicians. You're asking me who's going to run in 24? The people of Georgia get to decide who's going to be their senator in three days, Monday. And I hope they'll show up and vote. So he was talking about early voting there started yesterday. Uh, now yesterday on Monday. But of course, they weren't asking the question, who's going to run in 2024? What they asked was the question of whether you'd be support President Biden running for a second term in 2024. Jen, you're a communications strategist. You've worked in many Democratic administrations and on many campaigns. I, I would like you to tell me whether that was a good answer to that question <laughs> uh, under the circumstances and uh, aware, uh, under the circumstances of, of Rock Hill Warnock's election uh, in 2020, largely on the strength of Joe Biden, or at least partly on the strength of Joe Biden, and in this environment now. Like what? I mean, again, is that a winning? Is that is that? It, I, I mean, I'm. It's a consultant. It's a terrible consultant answer. <laughs> that is a disservice to consultants. People want you to take a stand, and you know, half of the half of Georgia is going to agree with you. Half of Georgia is not going to agree with you. But people will respect you if you take a stand. And first of all, Georgia <laughs> elected Joe Biden president, and is and the Democrats there are really proud of that fact, right? Joe Biden, Kamala Harris came down to Georgia to campaign for Warnock and Ossoff, and that is why Warnock and Ossoff are are senators today. And to not back him, I th you know, is just, you know, it looks it looks terrible. It's like it just it just looks it just looks terrible, and it and it irks some Democrats. Like, you get nothing out of that. You just look like you just look weaselly. You get nothing you like out politician. of it. And I haven't I haven't thought a minute about twenty twenty four. Oh my like, god. Even people who are watching the Braves game have thought about twenty. Have spent a minute thinking about twenty twenty four. You're a United States senator. And I've not spent a minute thinking about what politicians should run for what in 2024. And then he says, maybe this is difficult for people to understand. It's fucking impossible for anybody to understand who has half a brain. Like Matthew, if you're if you're the political director in the White House and and a and a senator, United States senator, was asked about whether he wanted George, George W. Bush to run for re-election in, in 2004, 
What would be the reaction on the political team if you heard an answer that was like that with respect to uh, to your boss if he was the sitting president of the United States? <laughs> would you be inclined? Would you be inclined to send him down to help later in the in the election cycle? Well, when, I don't. I, when we, turn I mean, out, would you be? Would that be something you would be like? Hmm, I don't know. No, it will. Well, it wouldn't foreclose helping him. It would for me if I was that person in the White House. I would roll my eyes and basically say exactly what Jennifer just said, which is I wouldn't call them consultants. I would call them bad consultants, which there seems to be a lot of them in this. <laughs> don't seem to get at all with this. And of course, you're going to you go and Joe Biden will go and help Raphael Warnock do whatever it takes, which is what you need to do in the course of this, because he'd make a better U.S. senator no matter what in this. This is I, the, the answer to that question to me is so easy. It would be like, if Joe Biden runs, of course I'll support him. But the question is, is why are you asking that question in the midst of the United States Senate race when we have act that dial online and this unqualified person running for office? I mean, that, I, mean I would just say, of course, next, no, let move on, attack, attack Herschel Walker. That's what I would have done. Yeah. I mean, I just find it like it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's really quite I mean, just political, it, political malpractice. I just think it's terrible. Have a point of view. You know, Tim Ryan got that yes. question and he says he's like not defensive at all. He's like, no, he I no. don't. No, he no. should not run. No, he should not run. <laughs> Donald Trump should not run. We need a new generation of leaders. There are two very good answers. And I thought that was a good answer, too. There are two very good answers to that question. Yeah. Yes or no. It's not actually about the content of the answer. It's about the confidence and certainty of like, it's a straightforward question. Of course, you've thought about it, have an opinion, and then move off it. And it, yeah. he's just worried because every consultant there is like, you know, Herschel's trying to tie you to Joe Biden and Joe Biden's not popular in the state. So don't say Joe Biden's name. And it's in, it's <laughs> rattling around in your head. And you and you got, he got, he got overcoached and he got over consultantized. But to speak of Tim Ryan, another place where we were this week on the circus or last week on the circus, Jennifer Palmer spent some time with Tim Ryan in Ohio following that debate. And, you know, there were many, there were many good Tim Ryan hits on J.D. Vance. This is the one, though, that went crazy in the viral universe. And Tim Ryan needs some craziness in the viral universe because he needs some money that he does not have right now. And he's got to raise some. He went after J.D. Vance about J.D. Vance's connections to Donald Trump. Let's listen to that. And here's the thing that's most troubling about this lack of courage is that after Trump took J.D. Vance's dignity from him on the stage in Youngstown. J.D. Vance got back up on stage and said, start shaking his hand, take a picture, saying, hey, aren't we having a great time here tonight? I don't know anybody I grew up with. I don't know anybody I went to high school with that would allow somebody to take their dignity like that and then get back up on stage. We need leaders who have courage to take on their own party. And I've proven that. And he was called an ass kisser by the former president. He was called an ass kisser by the former president and, and, and then proceeded to do what anybody does when you're called an ass kisser by Donald Trump, pucker up even more fulsomely and press your, your, your lips even more firmly against Donald Trump's buttocks. Matthew, give me your assessment. J.D. Vance is a candidate, and do you think that in a state that Donald Trump won by eight in 2020 and by eight in 2016, does Tim Ryan have a chance in that race? Yeah, I think Tim Ryan has a chance. I actually think the trend lines and how it's all gone. This race has not moved. Any poll has not had this race any further apart than two or three points either side. I think the fact that Tim Ryan's made it a race in Ohio in this year and how well Donald Trump did there shows that, that the environment's good. He's probably one of the last of the kind of candidates in Ohio that can win unless something fundamentally changes in politics. So I think he does have a legitimate shot. I mean, a real shot, mainly because J.D. Vance is such an awful, it's just such an awful character 
The thing I worry about Tim Ryan, and I worry about this for many of the Democratic candidates, which I think goes back to the consultants in this and some pollsters in this, I don't know what Tim Ryan's, and I, I could say this about many, and I think, again, he is a, he's well great on the stump. I don't know what his fundamental message in the entirety campaign is in one sentence. And so every argument he makes about everything is, fits that sentence when this is done. That's the thing I worry about for Tim Ryan is he says a lot of things on a lot of stuff and and criticizes J.D. Vance on him. But like many Democratic candidates, they think they have to talk about 10 things and not talk about one thing, ad infinitum and ad nauseum in this. And so that's all that's embedded in voters' minds. That's the thing I worry about with Tim Ryan. Jen, very quickly, because I want to move on to a couple of the races. Do you think you can say it? You know Tim Ryan pretty well. You covered would, him last week. So I'm curious. Yeah, I would, that. I would say he would say that you can count on me to fight for you. I've done it my whole life. You know, I mean, that is that is his one sentence for everything. I give you, Matt, that there's not a specific issue or a way that that's illustrated in, you know, people's lives. But it is it's like that gut, like you could just count on me to fight for you. So here's my question about about this, right? In Ohio, you've got Rob Portman retiring. You've got Pat Toomey in, in Pennsylvania retiring. They're, you know, open seats always easier than taking on an incumbent. The Ohio numbers have narrowed, but apparently a lot of national Democrats don't believe in Tim Ryan. He's not getting help right now from, from the DSCC or from a lot of the big outside groups. Putting a lot of money in a lot of places I don't think makes a lot of sense, and they're not putting it in Ohio, but whatever. They're certainly putting it, though. <laughs> they're certainly putting it in Pennsylvania, um, where it's a wild race in that race because of the things that have happened. Mehmet Oz, wild unto himself, and, and John Fetterman, who came out last week and did his first in-person interview in a while and previewed the notion that he has to use uh, closed captioning in order to uh, deal with some auditory processing issues that he says came out after his stroke. I just want you guys to just riff on, on the Pennsylvania race. Is, is it, I mean, Democrats are freaked out about this race. I mean, freaked out about this race, have been for a long time. And, you know, look, you have a candidate as compelling and charismatic as John Fetterman who has a stroke and hasn't been really campaigning very much in public, not doing a lot of interviews, not doing very many, any until last week in person. You can understand why Democrats are freaked out because they thought this was a Senate seat they could get and they thought they really could get it when they got Mehmet Oz as a, as a challenger on the Republican side. What do you guys think about the state of that? They got one big debate coming up next week where does that stand and what do you make of it? Uh, Jen, I'll start with you. Well, uh, what I would think about if I were that, you know, when you're entering the last month of the campaign, you're going to have a fight about something. What do you want that fight to be about? And I think if we were not focused on John Fetterman's recovery from a stroke, we would be even more focused on his record uh on criminal justice. You mean you mean we would be focused on it in the sense that you think we would be? There would be I think that I think that uh, the Republican I think that Oz and the Republicans would be getting more traction on a record on criminal justice. So it's like let's have the fight you want to have. In some ways, look, this is you know it's like tough all around. I think for his team, I think he has an extraordinarily talented team, right. and right now the race is centering on whether. Fetterman is able to do the job and is, you know, what has Oz revealed about himself and the way he's managed, he's handled this, you know, a doctor mocking him. I mean, I think Fetterman has been really effective. And when he does rallies, talks about people like, are you, you know, do you have a health issue? Does somebody in your family have a health issue? Um, I think it was smart to get out, you know, a few weeks ahead of the debate so that we could see like everybody process 
how he has to deal with this. And in some ways, if you're able to rally, you know, focus the sort of energy of the debate around around him, it's scary because these health questions are, you know, very scary, and it, it may end up that it's too it's too much of a concern for voters. But he and his wife have handled that the public piece of this, the way they rallied the public to their side, really well. Uh, they're very real, very real family. I think they're very relatable and. That may be, it's not the fight they wanted, obviously. No one wanted this fight, but it may be decent grounds in which to wage a battle in the last few weeks uh, with Oz when you consider what the alternatives might be. Matthew, do you think they've, I've, I've asked you to just react to what Jen just said and also just to tell me whether you think in toto that they've handled this well or poorly, or somewhere in between? Is there something else they could have done? Should they may have made more out of this and leaned into the notion of everybody suffers uh, health challenges, right? just like you, and 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 try to be more, I mean, they're in that space now to a larger, to a much larger extent than they were three months ago. How do you all do you think they've handled it? And what do you think the terrain is gonna be on which that race is decided in the end? So, I mean, not knowing the full extent of what it was going on. Yeah. I mean, from the outside, I think they've handled it poorly. I mean, I, I think very poorly in how they've handled it. They haven't been transparent at all. And I think at a time where where there's everybody's worried about shady stuff and all kinds of things and who's lying and who's not lying and all of that, I think they should have been incredibly transparent, even if to the extent of showing vulnerability on John Fetterman's part. But I don't know the extent of the, what was going on in those first few weeks after Maybe it was worse than any of us could have imagined in, in right. how he was oper how he was operating and how he could conduct himself. But I think they should have been much more transparent and showed a side of him that even if he made mistakes, that it showed him some more vulnerability or showed him in a sign of you know medical weakness in that. I think in the end, Oz is such a flawed candidate and he so doesn't fit the kind of voters you need in Pennsylvania. I mean, he just doesn't fit it at all. He fits it less than Donald Trump fit, fit Pennsylvania in this. And I think that Fetterman, and we'll see how he closes and we'll see what happens of debate and all of that. But I think Fetterman is the kind of person that the voters you need in Pennsylvania. I mean, you can go through and like, yeah, maybe he's not 100%, maybe he's not that. But a guy that's rooting for, or a guy or a gal that's rooting for the Pittsburgh Steelers, or the Philadelphia Eagles sitting out there who hates politics and hates everyone in politics can vote for John Fetterman over a flim flam guy from out of state. And Fetterman has done basically, unlike other candidates, he's basically wrapped this all in a flim flam right. man from another state that tries to sell you all kinds of stuff or has a bunch of houses. What all the things you can say is all tied into the thing that's not going to appeal to a Pittsburgh Steeler fan or a Philadelphia Eagle fan in this. And so I think it's I think it's 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 going to be closer than should have been. I think he should have won this race by eight or ten points yeah. in this at this moment. But I think he pulls it out in this because, as I said, I think Oz is just an incredibly right. disconnected candidate for Pennsylvania. So it looks like it's time for us to take one more quick break, and then we'll be right back with the final, the concluding section of this glorious midterm homestretch podcast with the one and only Matt Dowd and the one and only Jennifer Palmieri right here. Thank God they're here on Hell and High Water.
Okay, we are back with Jennifer Palmieri and Matthew Dowd on Hell and High Water. Here's my last Senate in this region question, um, which goes to the great state, the state of my father, where he was born and raised, um, the great state of Wisconsin, where the the most vulnerable Republican incumbent sits, a man named Ron Johnson, who is, I think Matthew would agree with me. I will say one thing. I'm glad we, we if we if this podcast un- had unlimited time, I could see Jen as as Matthew was talking about issues around health and disclosiveness. I can see <laughs> I could see a whole sub a whole sub podcast that would have related to Hillary Clinton and her health issues, and particularly when she when she whatever you want, I don't know what the right verb is, whatever happened on 9-11 in twenty sixteen and the way in which that unfolded. You could do a three hour podcast with Jen on just that issue alone. Um, and I, we luckily we don't have time because that would have been I mean it's fascinating stuff. Dealing with health issues, man, is it a it is a challenge for political candidates. But Ron Johnson doesn't have a health issue, and neither does Mandela Barnes, as far as I can tell. Ron Johnson does have an issue. He has an issue with being just a classless piece of shit, as was demonstrated in in this incredible debate that they had in Wisconsin last week, where asked like the one of the most like, hey, here's a traditional, we see it coming a mile away softball question. It's the question that we asked to try to end every debate on some kind of positive note, even if you've really spent the whole night kicking the shit out of your opponent, we're going to let you say something nice about them. So Ron even Johnson- Donald Trump had something nice to say about Hillary, Hillary when Clinton. he did this. Correct. It's, it's like, it is impossible to fuck this up. You can say anything. If you were, if this was asked in the Georgia debate and they said to Raphael Warnock, say something admirable about your opponent, you could have said, I really admire Herschel Walker's sperm motility. It would have been, it would have been a huge win. Raphael Warnock, you could always find something nice to say about people. Like you can find something nice to say about anybody. But here comes, here comes Ron Johnson's answer to that question in the debate last week when he was asked to say something admirable about his opponent, Mandela Barnes. You know, the senator has proven to be a family man, and I think that's, that's admirable. Um, you know, that's absolutely to be respected. He, he speaks about his family. He's uh, done a lot to provide for them. I absolutely respect that. Mr. Johnson. I mean, likewise, I appreciate the fact that uh, Lieutenant Governor Barnes had loving parents, a school teacher, father worked third shift, so he had a you know, good upbringing. I guess what puzzles me about that is with that upbringing, why is he turned against America? I mean, what, why, why does he find the right. founding of America awful? Jed, I'd like to say something admirable about you. Your parents are really fantastic, so why are you such a bitch? <laughs> I don't really understand. Like, man, your parents are really great. Matthew, you know, I, I, I really admire uh, your neighbors. They're really, they keep their streets really clean, but why are you a, a psychotic serial killer? I mean, like, what a fucking, what a fucking asshole. I swear to God, like I said, I mean, what do you, how does that guy win re-election. I think he probably is going to win re-election. Shh, don't tell anybody. But well, has it possible that Ron Johnson, who seems to be pulling away from Mandela Barnes, a guy with that little class, Jen, how's that happen? Wisconsin's tough. What you've seen happen is Ron Johnson use pretty racially loaded ads about crime, defunding the police. You know, this is Kenosha, of course, in the summer of 2020. Uh, Jacob Blake, uh, who was an unarmed black man that was shot, Unarmed, right, John? Correct, yes. Yes, yes unarmed. Right. Yep. Uh, Black Panther shot in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There were riots then. Mandela Barnes is lieutenant governor then. He was pretty active in these protests. And Johnson's trying to use that against him now. And, you know, unfortunately in Wisconsin, it seems to be, it seems to be working. Matthew, what Jen wants to say and isn't saying outright is that the reason that, that Ron Johnson can win is because Mandela Barnes is black and that there hasn't been, other than Mandela Barnes, who was elected statewide as lieutenant governor, I don't believe there's been a black statewide official elected in Wisconsin 
ever, right? ever, yeah. ever, I believe. It's kind of like Iowa with women. They just don't like it doesn't happen. And I, I, well, and I don't think Iowa has a female governor. Right finally, now. finally, for after all those years when they didn't. I know I'm, I'm, I, I give, yes, I give right, them the credit. Right, for, yeah, but yeah. there were a the hundred years when Iowa couldn't. I was like, yeah. I heard I heard that from Hillary Clinton a couple times. Um, <laughs> I, 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 look, is, is Wisconsin is Wisconsin more racist than Michigan? I don't think so. But it turns out black candidates have a hard time winning statewide there. That's a fact. I ask you, though, how much does that matter or how much are there other factors that I mean, maybe you think Mandela Barnes is going to win. It's not out of the question, but you have seen Johnson starting to put some distance between himself and Mandela Barnes using their kind of cultural and I would say racially tinged issues that Jen just talked about. So what's your take on Wisconsin? Well, has Michigan ever elected a high profile black ever? No, no. They've elected a I black. Mean, sure state, but governor. no, right. They elected a black lieutenant governor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I look. Same, I, I, same yeah, deal. Same okay. deal. Right. Okay. Fine. Okay. So, so Michigan and Wisconsin. Michigan and Wisconsin are just the same as level of racist. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, Michigan and Wisconsin are very similar in this. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has something that I, I think it's going to play a part, especially when you go outside. Obviously, you go outside of Milwaukee or Madison yeah. in the course of this, and you get around Green Bay and other areas and that are like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. In Wisconsin, Ron Johnson has has been a guy that no matter how bad he's been, I mean, he's gotten elected in two elections where he won by what, a percentage point each time yes. in two elections in, in, in 2010 and 2016 in this. I also remind people when you look at Wisconsin is that the former governor Walker wasn't the nicest person and he kept getting reelected. He was a jerk. <laughs> and he was a complete <laughs> And uh, to, to everybody. And he kept getting reelected and reelected and reelected in this. I still think Mandela Barnes has a shot because I yeah. think he survived, you know, basically a $12 million television onslaught in the last six weeks. And the race has ended up one of these, I think Ron Johnson's the average is he's about three or four points up. I think on average three or four points up. I think he's got a chance, but I've never, I'm never, I'm no longer surprised at Ron Johnson's ability to be a jerk and get reelected. All right, so we have very little time left. We basically have been talking about Senate, but I want to ask you guys, here are the two, here's the, the, the questions that I want to ask you about just about governors. Jen, what's the most interesting governor's race in America this, this time? <laughs> I mean, Gretchen Whitmer had a debate last week where she mopped the floor with, uh, with Tudor Dixon. She's now out of danger. Uh, the abortion issue and, and the backlash to Roe has helped her enormously, as you've covered for the circus and other people. Like She's like, that's a, that's now not a not a really a competitive race, even though it turns out, I guess, Barack Obama's going to Michigan uh, at the end of October for reasons I don't understand. Someone should probably, probably, should probably notify President Obama's office that uh, Gretchen Whitmer doesn't need his help anymore. But what's They the, decided what, that a long time ago. And I, I guess. They might want to revise the schedule. It's partly about Jocelyn Benson too. Yeah. Oh, you know, well, they want to make sure she wins. Yeah, I think that Honestly, go to Arizona. That's what, yeah, that's so who gonna needs say, your help. <laughs> I was going to say, get, get, get the man in Arizona. What's the like governor's race? I mean, intrigues you most like right I now. I mean, Arizona, as you know. So we went there last week for the circus and Carrie Lake, the Republican, former anchor, election denier, incredibly telegenic, incredibly charismatic, amazing communicator, probably better than Trump. Versus Katie Hobbs, the current Secretary of State, Democrat, who has refused to debate Carrie Lake. And 
she says, you know, Carrie Lake, John and I, you know, John, John and I watched her. I watched her for a couple of days. You, you just, we went to that one event. I together. was too scared after watching her and Christy Noman and, and having David Pluff say that could be the ticket in 2024. I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to a bar. She sounds so reasonable. She just weaves her conspiracy theories and she's got this very calm tone. And she's like, we just need to get rid of all this woke garbage. And how about some common sense? And why are we teaching sex ed to five-year-olds? Like, you know, and and then, and the question that she got to who, she, she spins like five thoroughly debunked conspiracy theories about voting. And then says, people just don't trust the elections. I just don't know. You know, it's a terrible thing. They can't trust the election system. Um, they just have some questions. They have questions. They just have questions. What's wrong with asking questions? I said, they're just questions after all. And she, you know, and she says that, she says, Katie Hobbs says, I'm a conspiracy theorist. Well, then stand up on stage and debate me. And well, that's the one thing. That's the one thing I agree with Carrie Lake on. She should stand up on stage and debate her. She should stand up on stage and, and, and debate and her. And knock her block off. Yeah, and it's, you know, I know you'd like, you don't want to like, you know, get in the back and forth of conspiracy theorists, but this is what's happening. This is like, I feel like the Arizona governor's race is a microcosm of the, you know, the bigger question at play for the country, which is, are we going to be on the side of truth or not? And Katie Hobbs has got to stand up and defend the, you know, it's easy for me to say sitting here in my house in New Jersey, but like, you gotta, you got, that's what the fight is, sister. You got to engage in the fight. People got freaked. People got freaked out. Jen said this thing about how you don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but you got to go down the rabbit hole. And I was like, you got to go down the rabbit hole and beat the shit out of the rabbit. And I said that <laughs> kind of on Morning Joe. And people were like, wow, what was with you and rabbits? And I'm like, hey man, if you're not willing to go down the rabbit hole, you shouldn't be running for office in America in 2022. That's where our politics that's takes place. Is. If you don't want to go down the rabbit hole, fine, don't go down hole. the go down the rabbit hole. There's a lot of non rabbit hole places in America right now. You can go have a nice life somewhere. But if you're going to be in politics, you got to go down the rabbit hole because that's where the fights going on and if you let the rabbits you don't get on the hole the rabbits are the gophers or whatever under there undermining everything else they're, they're eating away at the roots of the whole country so you got to get down there and kill them where they live i mean i think if katie hobbs loses it's all her fault it becomes all her fault in this she allows carrie lake to be elected governor which is a, obviously it would be a disaster in this but katie hobbs was the secretary of state who for two years has talked about we got to speak truth and we got to confront the conspiracies and we got to push back against the lies and we have to do that. I'm going to run for governor to protect our democracy and push back and I'm going to tell the truth. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to debate somebody that lies. Well, yeah, that, <laughs> that to me just tells the voters, I mean, they're basically, if they're both seen as like two people like that, then, then Carrie Lake likely wins in this, which is a disaster, which shouldn't be happening. But it's Katie Hobbs's fault because She's running for governor of Arizona and she doesn't think she should stand up and confront somebody like Carrie Lake, who has a really good shot at being governor. The other thing I'll add in this, what you said, interesting races. Yeah. Christy Nome's race in South Dakota will not be called for a long time. That If Christy Nome wins, Christy Nome is exceedingly vulnerable. And I don't think people have focused on it because of a series of scandals. She hasn't tended to the state. She hasn't paid any attention to it. There's been some polling done that has the, the Democrat within four or five points in South Dakota. And I, I don't th I think Christy Nome will end up winning, but I think Christy Nome's race is going to be incredibly, incredibly close. Wow. That's that's a super that's super interesting. And it makes me think I want to go to South Dakota. 
I have one last question because I know you guys can. Can I go. say one thing more? Thing yeah, about yeah, yeah, that yeah, I, yeah, that yeah. I, that yeah. This is, this is the dark place I'm living in right now, Don. Is you guys are both living in very well lighted places. In fact, weirdly, your backgrounds are like I mean, like as if you're in the same place. We're across from each other. It does it's look so <laughs> it's so freaking weird. It's like Joe and Mika here. You guys are like, oh, it's just like really strange. Like what's going on here? But okay, yeah, like you look at the same house, same color, same color paint on the walls. It's like really fucking weird. Okay, go on, Jen. It's our homes in the woods. Carrie Lake may may very well legitimately be elected governor of Arizona mm. on the basis of lies. Yes. Well, that's not, you what know, gonna, what, what does democracy time. do with that? Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and her opponent refused to confront her. I mean, that's I what's crazy. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. Okay, so here's my last know. question. Okay. My last, last question. question. This is my last question. It's my, it's my, one of my, one of my hobby horses. And it's going to take us back around to a question of a woman who does not get enough attention. I think sometimes in our politics, uh, the vice president of the United States, who went on Seth Meyers and talked about weed. Weed is one of my things. Um, like I, I, I often, there's nothing I've ever been more wrong about in politics than as a young man at the Kennedy School of Government in 1988 saying there were two things I'm certain of. Weed will never be legal and gay marriage will never be legal. And I was like, man, I've never been wrong. never been wronger about anything in my life than those two things. And thank God, I say. But Kamala Harris goes on with Seth Meyers and uh, after Joe Biden did the big pardon, uh, the big, you know, the big, the big federal pot pardon, again, all for it. She's asked about it. And she said this. And then I want to talk to you guys about the politics of it. And then we'll be done. Nobody should have to go to jail for smoking weed. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we start with that. And then we are, to your point, urging and the president has been very clear. We're urging governors and states to take our lead and to pardon people who have been criminalized for possession of marijuana. And ultimately, though, as with so many issues, if Congress acts, um, then there is a, a, a uniform approach to this and so many other issues. But Congress needs to act. We're 29 days away from the midterms. Um, ask who you're voting for, wh- where they stand on this, and, um, and I encourage you to vote accordingly. Okay, so here's my question. It's a very serious question. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, you think about issues, you know, what are the sleeper issues? What dro- what dominates a campaign at the end, right? Well, our Republicans think crime is that issue for sure. And, and again, we've talked a little bit about some of the racial uh, components of it in the Wisconsin Senate race, and that's true in a lot of places. But I know, Jen, you and you know, too, that there are some Democrats in, in vulnerable districts who are like, not happy about this move, or at least they think it complicated their lives. I'm a giant advocate of what Biden did. I'm for it on policy grounds. I'm interested because you guys are both super sophisticated politically. Like, is is this, given that Republicans were driving on the crime train, again, often based on bogus statistics and, and, and racial fear and all kinds of other stuff, but they were on this train anyway. Is this a thing that is going to like, is it a, is it a problem? Does it cause, is it have a material impact? Does it help Republicans make their arguments on crime, their bullshit arguments on crime? I'm, I'm really curious to hear you guys just unpack the politics of this, where again, I think on the policy, they're a thousand percent right, but they obviously also thought, must've thought there was some political benefit to it, or they wouldn't have done it at the time that they did it. So talk to me about what you guys think. And, and, and Matthew, I'll let you go first and then Jen, you can bring us home. So I don't think there's any downside to it at all because it's an issue that's now completely completely flipped over a short period of time. To me, it's a lot like what happened to gay marriage. I mean, I, I still remember when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton both came out against gay marriage. And within three years of that, the country was overwhelming. It's done. The issue is over. What are we talking about this anymore? 
That happened in a short period of time. Two of the they greatest were, lies ever told by two presidential candidates. Both of them <laughs> saying that they were against gay marriage. But the <laughs> fact that they said they were against it was a political answer because that's what they thought. And the country was moving fast. The country's moved on marijuana in the in the course of this. And so I don't think it benefit. I mean, it's got a 65% people say, why, why, why are we dealing with this? People have so many other issues. We have now a generation of folks a, a generation of people under 45 that are basically like wh- stoned wh- all the time. Yes, that's <laughs> correct. Thank God. Well, they're just like, why should anybody, why should anybody th- consider this illegal anymore? And so I don't think it's a benefit to the Democrats in this, but I don't think there's any downside for the Democrats. That's so comforting. Thank you, Matthew. I hope that Jennifer's not going to punch puncture that bubble in any way. Go ahead. I think that when they probably did it, they understood, they understood it to be a risk, but I think it has ended up not being a risk. And I think that I hear young people talk about it. Like, and I, and I hear, and I think the same is true for the student loan decision, which I know there's a lot of people that are upset that don't like the student loan decision, but you saw Joe Biden's approval rating with young people jump by 10 points after that happened. And if you're looking to, I prefer White Houses that default to action. I hate White Houses that like wring their hands and don't do anything. So, um, I think for both on student loans and on marijuana, those decisions, I think they're going to help with young voters. I got to tell you. It's very tangible. It's very, very tangible. Oh, it's very tangible. All right. I'll say this. You know, first of all, I wanted to try to end this episode on a high note, and that's good. We're (laughs) ending on a high note. But I also want to say this. I like, you know, I never understood like Bernie Sanders, who was like good on the environment and good on 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 student debt from the from young people standpoint, right? Like, how are we to get young people engaged? How that would sort of drive youth turnout? Bernie was like, got, got those two right. The Holy Trinity would have been campaigned avidly to decriminalize marijuana. We could analyze it all day long, but it has always seemed to me. And now it's like the the states have moved so fast that it was not the benefit to it. But like a presidential candidate who would have made legalizing weed their the centerpiece of their campaign in in twenty sixteen or in twenty twenty, I mean. I don't know. I can't. And that's a, that's not just a thing that young people like. That's a turnout machine. That's like a that's the thing that that's what the young people will go out and vote for. And I just have never understood why politicians didn't get with this program faster because it makes eminent political sense to me. But then you know I'm a fucking hophead. Well, so they get they, they get politicians. And we can all three of us can name any number of issues. They get stuck in an old time. They get stuck in an old conversation, and they it takes them long time to move out of the old conversation. Well, listen. You guys have always been uh, within your respective orbits, uh, avatars of progress, forward-looking, future-oriented politics, policies, and and personal relations. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's great to see you both. Your background drop settings are like freaking me out. I'll say it again. <laughs> it's like I'm not convinced you guys aren't in the same place. Uh, but uh, but if you are, uh, you guys could go smoke a bowl. Um, uh, well, after you get off the air and, uh, and 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 have one for me wherever it is you are enjoying yourself in the woods. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. That was fun. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jennifer Palmieri and Matthew Dowd for coming on the podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney and Amr Sultan, the Sultan of SWAT, produced and engineered this episode. Zoya Soroy, she's our researcher, and the one and only, the truth, the light, the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall Eisen, is our executive producer.